Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, November 22nd, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about Ghostbusters Afterlife. This is Slash Film Editorial Director Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast, it's none other than senior writer Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to talk Ghostbusters, we can't have anybody else other than you, Brad. It's your favorite movie of all time, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, it's among the rotation of like what I consider my pretty unflinching top five. And like it's depending on the day and whatever, like it's definitely uh, my favorite movie. And then sometimes it's just a little bit above or below my favorite movie. But it's it's always definitely up there. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so in, in this podcast, we're going to talk about spoilers. If you haven't watched Ghostbusters Afterlife uh, or any of the other Ghostbusters movies, we're probably going to be spoiling them all in some respect uh, go watch them come back to us um brad said that you know ghostbusters is one of his favorite movies of all time it's not quite up there you know in my top 10 but definitely is like one of my favorites from my childhood and i i rewatch it all the time um uh the Ghostbusters 2, you know, not so much. There's some stuff to like about that movie, but there's also some really, really bad stuff. And I remember as a kid, I used to have all the, like, Ghostbusters, uh, the cartoon, like, action figures. And I had, like, um, I had the Firehouse. It was, it was, I had the Ecto-1. It was, it was awesome. Uh, but uh, when Ghostbusters Answer the Call came out a few years back, what, like, five years ago now? Four? Something like that. Um I was one of the people that was disappointed by that film. Uh, I was largely disappointed in how it kind of felt. Uh, <laughs> Brad's going to take issue with this, but like a, a elongated SNL sketch. Um, it, it just felt like more, not that Ghostbusters 1 wasn't a comedy. It's definitely a comedy, but it felt like nobody was taking anything seriously in, in that movie. Um, it, and it was kind of frustrating because there was this whole conversation around the film of like, there was a very sexist reaction from some fanboys and then there was critics and it was just like you had to either be on one side or the other. And I felt like in the middle because I didn't like the movie, but I also 
uh, it wasn't for any of the reasons that the, the the sexist fanboy, you know, problematic reaction had about the film. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, here we come to Ghostbusters Afterlife. What did you think of of the sequels, Brad? Before we get to Afterlife, um, I I never quite had the same love for Ghostbusters two as I did the original Ghostbusters. Um, it seems like it gets a little bit more cartoonish and is kind of uh, made to be more family friendly because of the popularity of the animated series, um, much in the same way that like Ninja Turtles kind of took a turn after the first movie and became more kid friendly because of the animated series. And um, when it comes to Ghostbusters answer the call, I think that I liked it more than many Ghostbusters fans did because I think that it was still funny, even though it felt like it was trying way too hard to be a comedy and a different kind of comedy than the original Ghostbusters in uh, some ways. And it didn't quite feel like a proper Ghostbusters movie. And I, I took a, I had a big problem just with kind of like how it treated the like iconography um, of that iteration of the Ghostbusters and um, how it didn't really have it like any established like rules or um, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it, it felt like a weird blend <laughs> of, a large tentpole blockbuster that you didn't need to necessarily do with Ghostbusters and comedy that was really going for laughs instead of just bringing comedy to the situation itself, which is, you know, what makes the original Ghostbusters so great. Yeah. Uh, so coming to this movie, I think we were both uh, excited. It seemed like you were kind of hesitant about this movie because of uh, the trailers, uh, some of the stuff in the trailers, like the mini puffs and, and stuff like that, right? Um, honestly, I was fine with most of the marketing. I mean, even the uh, I, I don't know if it was the final trailer, if it was like the, the the full trailer after the initial one that came out, like you know, almost two years ago because of the COVID delay. <laughs> um, but like the the one that really like hit the nostalgia hard for me and was you know serious, like it, it actually brought tears to my eyes because I kind of I liked, um the feel of like a Ghostbusters movie that had kind of a Force Awakens vibe to it. And I, I actually um, didn't mind that there didn't seem to be the same kind of comedy in this movie that there was in the original, because to me, I feel like for the long time, Ghostbusters has needed to kind of go in a different direction because the cast has aged so much and that you can't really make that same kind of movie with that cast anymore, especially with the absence of Harold Ramis. And I think taking it in this direction where they, they made kind of like an Amblin movie set in the universe of Ghostbusters was a refreshing take on the franchise and offered an opportunity to do something new. So I was on board with this movie. And I, even when the mixed reaction started coming out in my mind, I was like, there's no way it's, you know, this, like this, this bad or that um, (laughs) I'm not going to enjoy it. It feels like it's going to hit my sweet spot because I'm, I do have a reverence for nostalgia for the things that I love, you know, even when other people uh, hate it and are bugged by it, I'm usually on the side of like, no, I really enjoyed this because, you know, it kind of, it just touches, you know, my heart or like, or hits that spot from whether it's being a child or a teen and depending on the franchise that's, you know, being sequelized in a legacy fashion. So I, I wasn't put, put off by the marketing or even the mixed reviews when they started coming out. Yeah, and I, you saw the film, and I messaged you online after you saw it, and I was like, what do you think? Fully expecting you to be like, 
it was awesome or I have like, you know, a couple problems with it, but it really hit home. And that's not what I heard. Brad, what did you think of Ghostbusters Afterlife? Yeah, I mean, uh, I the the closest comparison I can make to this is I felt slightly less betrayed than I did after Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Um for the first two thirds of the movie, I was pretty happy. I had some like little nitpicks, but um, I was enjoying the, the ride. I, I I liked what was on the table. I appreciated what Jason Reitman was doing with the franchise. The new characters were um, charming and uh, engaging. And even since it did a lot of the things that Force Awakens did by basically taking pretty much the exact same story from the original Ghostbusters, but, but putting it in a rural setting and adding some new characters into the mix. And I was fine with it for those first two thirds and the first, the first, uh, first two acts. And then the ending started to come together and things felt really rushed. And there were a lot of leaps and logics and assumptions about stuff that the characters figured out. And then they like, after the movie was pretty, is is pretty nostalgic throughout because as Jason Reitman has said, he's called it the greatest Easter egg hunt of all time. And, it's a little much because they're it, it's trying to like do these like touching winks and nods to things that are really should be much more inconsequential than some fans think that they are. And that's coming from somebody who is a huge Ghostbusters fan and really does dig into nostalgia. And it's, it started to feel overwhelming, especially when the ending comes around and we'll get to the specifics of that in a moment, but the way this movie culminates in, into its finale and how all these pieces come together, it just felt like a, a misguided veer into overly sentimental nostalgia that just doesn't feel earned. It feels like it betrays the characters and the, the idea behind the original Ghostbusters movies. And I I feel like there's too much of a love from Jason Reitman and Ivan Reitman for what the movie means to them, which on one level is fine because they're the filmmakers, they can do what they want to. But I think that for me, it just didn't work because it feels like it's a little bit manipulative and what it, what it ultimately does just doesn't feel right. And I'll yeah. leave it at that until we get to the specifics. Yeah. I do want to say that a lot of the Easter eggs and stuff like that are stuff that if you weren't a Ghostbusters fan would be stuff in the background or stuff that you wouldn't notice or a lot like it, it's not for the most part until you get to that third act it's not very obvious <laughs> in my respect. And I was actually kind of uh, appreciating that. Like, you know, the, even uh, Reitman does this thing where there's a couple moments in this film where it leads up to this like moment that you're as a fan, as a Ghostbusters fan, like, you know, you have the kid, I forget which one he was like taking the tarp off the Ecto one and it was about to reveal the logo. And then I, I forget what happens. Something happens to like, uh, I don't know a better word, like cock block the situation that you as a fan can't get the, that triumphant like reveal of that moment. And uh, there was that with the the trap. There was that with that. So I kind of like those kind of things. Um, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I'm a person who grew up with the Amblin movies in the eighties. I, I like this, this force awakens slash Cloverfield take, on Ghostbusters, uh, I would say it's more of a Super Eight take than Cloverfield. Oh, sorry, uh, Super Eight. Yes, <laughs> no, is, that, is, that, is that what you meant? 
Yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, a super eight take on 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 Ghostbusters. Um, it actually kind of annoys me that like I I've seen so many reviews uh, harping on the whole like this isn't the same kind of movie that the original Ghostbusters is. You know, this isn't the comedy that Ghostbusters is. Where these are the same critics that like when you get the same exact thing or like, why isn't this any different? Yeah. So I don't know. So, so that part of it does, did not, um, was not a problem for me. I, I really bought into the nostalgia for the most part until I want to say like the terror dogs. Yes. Started to arrive. Yeah. And then everything went downhill very fast. Yeah. And, uh, and I should also say that, um, um, you know, recently, I, uh, I mean, Kitra, I've been going through, uh, you know, Kitra's mom died. We've been up to Sacramento kind of uh, going through her mom's stuff and like uh, having to, you know, decide what gets donated, how, well, you know, finding old memories. So, so that whole part of this movie like hit me in a way that probably deeper than most people. And I'm sure, Brad, you went through similar stuff uh, last year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that's actually one of the, the things that kind of like. I, I was almost surprised by how little I was affected emotionally by this ending that is really supposed to pull at your heartstrings. And I think that that, yeah. that was a big like piece of evidence to me that it didn't feel earned and it just didn't, didn't work narratively. Yeah. Um, I do, you know, I do have to bring up, we mentioned that like, you know, critics generally hate nostalgia plays. Uh, you know, they, they, they tend to like look down on anything, like even the slightest bit of nostalgia in movies. Critics are not ex- heavily accepting this movie. I mean, I guess it's fresh. What is it? It's, um, or is it fresh on Rotten Tomatoes? 62%. What is fresh? Fresh is 60%. So I guess it is fresh on Rotten Tomatoes technically. Um, but I do want to bring up that they have over 2,500 audience ratings and is at 96%. So... Yeah, I, I do want to bring up that there is a discrepancy here of what, how much, how many critics are the percentage of critics that are liking this movie and the percentage of the audience that's liking this movie. Um, I, when I pull up my Twitter feed and I see everybody talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife, it's all film Twitter and it's mostly all mocking or hate or like bringing up plot holes and stuff like that. When I bring up my my Instagram stories and I'm going through like normal people. <laughs> <laughs> I say that as if like uh, film Twitter isn't normal. Uh, general audiences, uh, the, the people that are friends in my life that are not like, you know, film critics, not heavily invested in the film world. Um, they're talking about how they left them the theater crying and stuff like that. So it, I think it does affect some people, but I think we, Brad, maybe we're smarter and more cynical or not smarter. We're, we're more cynical of what, what's being going on here. It, it is a little heavy handed. Uh Maybe I honestly I think this is one of those things where there is a little bit of a separation between like general audiences and and critics who have come to see so many of these stories told. And so I think that there's a certain forgiveness among general audiences, especially when something appeals so clearly to their feelings and their emotions and their love for nostalgia. And I think that it's it's easy for those things to overwhelm and maybe even overshadow any shortcomings that there, there might be because you're so focused on that that good feeling um and i think I've, I've been in that position before too where something has worked for me on a level and i've seen critics you know bashing it and disliking it and i, t- I totally understand it. i don't begrudge anybody 
um, you know, liking this or having that feeling and enjoying it and, and things like that. But I think that there, there does need to be some recognition of that. Like not everybody has the same experience and like there, if you, Anybody can notice, uh, you know, certain elements, pieces of movie in the in the story, in character development, whatever, that just makes the rest of it fall apart. Uh, it doesn't mean that the movie is inherently bad. Again, we all have different opinions and like none of them are necessarily necessarily right. And critics can obviously be more brash and relentless when it comes to, to dunking on things just because it's, it's part of, the, um, you know, just the general uh, culture o- online and whatnot. Um, but like, you know, I... I would never mock somebody for for liking Ghostbusters oh, yeah, Life yeah. and being emotionally affected by it. Um, but it's just for for me personally, there's just something that the connection isn't isn't there, and I feel like it's not uh, it's not as good as it should have been or could have been. And that's even based on what there is there. I think that another pass could have been done on this script by somebody outside of Jason Reitman and Gil Keenan and Ivan Reitman to really tighten it up and have it feel less like a less personal to them and something that actually works on a a broader level and i and i and i know it still does work on a broader level because there's plenty of fans out there who are enjoying it but i don't know i I think that there's a lot of blemishes and it's hard to to cover them up with just the emotional nostalgia that's there okay let's let's jump into some of the things here because we got a bunch to talk about um, let's talk about, uh, I, I guess, almost the Force Awakens style treatment of the Ghostbuster. And I say that in the sense that, you know, when when we meet Rey at the beginning of Force Awakens, she doesn't know about Luke Skywalker. Like, you know, it's like the galaxy has kind of moved on. It's been three decades. Uh, I think that to me works a lot better than the Star Wars galaxy where everything's so spread out and like uh, there's myths and fables and like, you know she was born after all that uh here i think on earth if we were on one planet and not once but at least twice there was these huge events where there was like you know huge marshmallow men and the statue of liberty was walking because ghostbusters 2 is is canon here i think that's not something that we would forget i mean maybe if you were like a 10 year old kid but you'd still know that like oh my God, ghosts are like an afterlife exists. Ghosts are real. Like that would be a thing, right? Yeah, this is, and here's, this is the thing because like, so back when it seemed like this was how Ghostbusters Afterlife was going to treat Ghostbusters, I was, I was actually forgiving in the lead up to it because they kind of already established uh, how short people's memories can be and how many people think that what happened in the original Ghostbusters was like a hoax because in Ghostbusters 2, which takes place five years after the original, the Ghostbusters are kind of down on their luck. They're viewed as a joke by a lot of people. They're doing birthday parties. Um, they, they've had to uh, pay for damage that was under the city. Um, you know, uh, the mayor's office, it doesn't really trust them anymore. And so I think it was fine to accept the idea that maybe in 30 years, the Ghostbusters have been forgotten. And maybe some of that stuff has, again, been deemed a hoax. And I, it, was, it, it was okay. But then in the context of this movie, it doesn't fully make sense because you have Paul Rudd's character, uh, Gary Gruberson, this teacher who remembers what happened with the Ghostbusters. And he tells Phoebe and his, uh, her new friend podcast about it. Uh, and then they're able to look up a bunch of information. Like she goes and watches video, the commercial of the original Ghostbusters. And there's clearly information out there about this. Now you could easily say there's a lot of videos on YouTube that aren't actually true. And so maybe it's not as easy to buy into, but then you have when Phoebe 
reveals the information that she learned that Egon Spengler is their grandfather to Trevor, he acknowledges that he's heard the stories and like, he's not really surprised by, by it, or at least we don't get any time to see him process it in that way. So to me, it's weird to have this thing where Paul Rudd's character acknowledges that there hasn't been a ghost sighting in 30 years, but like the idea of ghosts existing somehow isn't a big deal here. You know, maybe it's something that's just talked about among weirdo scientists like Gruberson and, and people like podcast, which uh, by the way, I think that it is a huge misstep and doesn't make any sense to have a character like podcast, not know about the events of ghostbusters when he's so knowledgeable about everything else in the supernatural world. Like there that, that needed to be fixed because it, it makes zero sense within as far as his character is concerned. But like, I just, I have trouble coming to terms with the fact that like the world, the world has forgotten that these two nine 11 level events happened. And I guess the only way to really like, explain it away is that there are probably kids who were babies when 9-11 happened and they don't understand like the weight and like how big that kind of tragedy was and maybe that's why generations later no one really talks about it anymore but then on the other end of the spectrum we talk about (laughs) 9-11 every year and you know so so it's not like it's that's that's something that has been forgotten even though it's been you know 20 years now so it's weird it's very weird (laughs) But it's also weird that, like, the treatment of Egon, where he moved out to this, like, place in middle America and, like, everybody's calling him Dirt Farmer or whatever. It's, like, you'd think, like, if back then someone who was part of, like, this big thing that was either, you know, a big thing that people believed, this uh, ghost attack in New York City or this thing where it was, like, this big hoax, they would be, like, it's that crazy guy that hoaxed, you know, that – stole money from the mayor to fight fake go- do you know what I mean like I feel like yeah. there would so be like, that so reputation would national- yeah it would have to be national news it'd have to be big and it has to be it's big enough that like somebody like Phoebe's brother Trevor has heard those stories and so much to the point where when she says Egon Spengler is our grandfather he obviously has to know who Egon Spengler is for that to have any meaning to it for him whatsoever which raises a whole yeah. other question as to why the kids don't know what their mother's maiden name is but um yeah, it's just <laughs> I yeah, I, I and like and honestly the I the this brings me to like my Well, to be fair, maybe they knew the maiden name but they didn't know, they didn't connect the dots and they didn't know yeah, I don't know. What what were you going to say? Sorry. Well, so this this kind of goes into um the I the, the the biggest problem that I have which is basically the impetus for the the entire movie is that Egon being estranged from the rest of the Ghostbusters uh, doesn't feel like it makes sense to the integrity of the team and the relationship that they had. I, mm, I, I didn't think you were going to have a problem with this. Okay. Because so, cause I, when they, when Phoebe has her conversation with Ray and she tries to tell him, you know, what was going on and that she, um, that, that Egon, you know, essentially like needs their help because he's, he, he had died uh, I I was very intrigued. And, and that first line was like, he can rot in hell. Yeah, Egon Spengler can rot in hell. I was so intrigued by that line. I was like, whoa, what the hell happened to the Ghostbusters? <laughs> and the reasoning behind it to me isn't good enough because the, the team went through these two big events where they saved the world. And Ray does talk about how they felt like uh, disgraced after it happened. Things were tough for them because there weren't a lot of ghosts to catch anymore. 
And so they were kind of on, on the outs in general that they didn't want to deal with what Egon found as a new threat. But to me, that that's not like, that's not the Ghostbusters that I know. They were a tight crew. They were, they were friends and colleagues before they ever started the Ghostbusters business to the point that, that, that Ray took out uh, another mortgage on his parents' house to fund the business that they would create, you know? And they, there's no way that they, A, didn't believe what was happening and B, wouldn't help him in a situation like that. Uh, I just, I find it really hard to believe. And I think that that's, to me, that's what makes the third act not work so well, because I don't buy into the fact that they would have just disregarded him so, so easily and for so long to, to make that possible. Okay. Before we get to the third act, let's talk about some of the new names here. I know um, when the buildup to this film was happening, there was a, uh, I think an action figure released of one of the main characters and it revealed that his name was podcast. And we had this whole conversation in our slash film Slack with everybody making fun of this. And I, I was the one person in, in the Slack being like, no guys, this could be, this could make sense. He, he has like a podcast and like the people at school and like make fun of him and call him podcast. And that nickname is stuck. And boy, was I wrong? Yeah. It's a self-ascribed <laughs> nickname and it just feels like, a tone deaf one given to by somebody who thinks that they're like, Oh yeah, this is, this will be a funny thing for the youths to enjoy. And it's just like, yeah, a character like this wouldn't give himself that name. Yeah. It's, it's like, I, I know right now, like the number one profession that any kid wants to be is a content creator or, or more uh, specifically a YouTuber. Yeah. I, I can't imagine a little kid being like, I'm going to call myself YouTuber. Like it does, that does, it sounds like it was made by someone who's like 40 or 50 years old that doesn't understand children. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. And also, it, the, the whole idea of this podcast feels like it was invented by someone who doesn't listen to podcasts. Like he gives the podcast to her on like some kind of USB drive. That's not yeah. what kids, that's not how it works. You download it off the internet. And if he, if, I, I know it, it would probably take more time, but like that's not how kids are going to do it. They're going to airdrop it from their phone to their phone or something. Like I don't know, it just feels felt so out of touch. <laughs> uh, another name I wanted to bring up is Muncher. This is the Slimer-like uh, ghost that is in this film. And when I first heard this name, I was very like, "Ah, oh, this sounds bad." But I actually liked Muncher in this film. What did you think of Muncher? Um, I thought he was fine you know there wasn't anything that like bugged me about him clearly a proxy for slimer without using slimer um yeah i mean it was it's just one of the many elements where like it's skewed close to representing something from the original ghostbusters or and it's just vaguely different enough to create some kind of variation on that whole uh that whole uh direction Let's talk about the mini puffs. This is another thing that like was revealed in the marketing because I guess they're coming out with toys and stuff. So they had to show this a little bit early and all of film Twitter and our Slack channel was so hating the mini puffs. <laughs> um, I actually think in this film they're, f- I mean, listen, okay. Number one, it doesn't make any sense that marshmallows are turning into mini state puff marshmallow men. No. Number two, does it make sense that the state puff marsh state puff marshmallow company kept 
the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man as their mascot <laughs> after he almost destroyed New York City? No. I never even thought about that. That's a hilarious thought that like the company did not do like a 180 degree turn and be like, oh, we, we got to get away from this, guys, because our marshmallow mascot almost destroyed New York City. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but n- number three, I, I love how there are these little like assholes that are like just brutally trying to kill each other. And it, it's fun. They're, they're cute, but brutal and evil. What did you think of the, the the mini puffs? Yeah, I actually really enjoyed this. You know, it's one of two big scenes in this movie I think that really work well and come close to capturing like the the, the potential of what this movie could have been because it's just demented enough to kind of fit into that, that the Ghostbusters style of like ghosts that were genuinely creepy but also kind of weird and, and funny in their own way, and they're just so twisted in the way that they treat each other and i i'm my only like big problem with them and i was more forgiving of it because the scene does work so well is that there's there's no logistical or narrative reason for them (laughs) to exist or appear because that was such a specific thing that happened in that moment in the original ghostbusters created by you know an image in ray's mind uh, to pick a, a destroyer that was sent by gozer to to destroy new york city so it's on one hand, I was thinking, oh, maybe there's some kind of like paranormal memory here that's coming through because we're obviously going to be dealing with Gozer stuff again. And maybe it's like this remnant of what happened before because Gozer is coming back. But nope, that's not it at all. <laughs> Why didn't Gozer have them pick their destroyer this time? Because like, I, I know like we're going off in this movie for what it chooses to kind of like redo from the original Ghostbusters. But I feel like that would have been a trope to use from the original Ghostbusters. They could have kind of turned on his head a little bit and used like something different. I don't know what you would use that. Well, and that's actually one of my biggest things I think with the overall finale is that it feels anticlimactic in that way, because sure. Gozer is the villain of the original Ghostbusters, but the big surprise and the wild thing that they have to deal with is the arrival of that stay puffed marshmallow man. And I was expecting something else to come along here. And I was thinking that it might, it was supposed to be what they referred to as the, the Sentinel terror dogs, which are the terror dog um, terror dogs that walk on their hind legs, like kind of like human terror dog hybrids, but we don't ever really see that thing in, in action other than very briefly. And in like, in like a, a little like miniature statue form, I think. And I was expecting maybe like one of those to show up and be like, something for them to deal with but it's it's just gozer which was which was very weird to me yeah okay let's talk about the tech upgrades i know a lot of people that love ghostbusters they love the props the costumes they 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 build out their uh their proton packs their all all the little uh the the, what is the neutrino wand neutrino wand neutrino wand uh all all those little uh, stuff it's interesting that this movie doesn't introduce I mean, it does introduce some new stuff, but it's mostly like... It's mostly modifications on stuff that already existed. Yeah, so you have like... Correct me if I'm wrong, but on the glasses, there's now a Polaroid camera? I I think that that was always part of the goggles, but I don't think that it was ever used in the movie. Okay. And then there's a gunner seat in the Ecto-1, which is cool. Very cool, but is this like a modification that Egon made after he left the Ghostbusters, or is this like something that happened like after Ghostbusters 2 when like they were still in New York? Because like to have a gunner seat, he needs to have someone driving the car. 
Yeah, I would think that this is probably something that was added to the Ecto one sometime after Ghostbusters two, and we just never saw it, you know, in in the movies or anything like that. Yeah. Um, uh, do, do you have any thoughts on the, any of the tech upgrades we see in this movie? Um, I think they definitely add a an interest, interesting blockbuster element to it. I think that the sequence with the Ecto one and the remote control ghost trap is probably the most successful um action sequence it's the most exciting and fun and i like the incorporation of like the the gunner seat with the the trap and the just the ecto-1 racing through town um so yeah i was i was fine with all that it was interesting enough upgrades and i'm glad they didn't try to go for anything more like ecto like egon making a a more powerful uh proton pack or or something like that or introducing tech that we had never seen before like because that's something that ghostbusters answer the call uh, did kind of in an overwhelming sort of way, introducing a bunch of ghost tech where it wasn't really clear exactly what it did to the ghosts. And I like that they kept it simple, but just kind of did a little bit of upgrading here and there. I, I know Mike Ryan uh, brought this up in his interview with Jason Reitman, but at what point did Egon change the logo on the side of the Ecto-1 back to the original Ghostbusters logo? Because it didn't have the Ghostbusters 2 logo in Ghostbusters 2. So what what I am thinking actually is I'm thinking that maybe they had a second Ecto vehicle. Because if I remember correctly, that one is called the Ecto-1A. And there are some uh. other modifications that were made to it. And part of me thinks that they had a second vehicle, which is would explain why they have a Ghostbusters 2 logo on it. Not just for the movie, but for maybe for, to like signify. it being a second car yeah exactly so that that's my thought that's like my explanation for it, and that's why i think that he has the original ecto one touche brad you actually i i would i was just bringing it up to mock the movie but you actually i think came up with a reasonable answer that makes complete sense okay uh let's talk about how this town connects to the original ghostbusters and gozer like what what do you think about i mean okay First off, this movie having to use the same villain, I think we probably both don't like that. Um, I would have liked it more if they figured out a way to vary up the formula a little bit, especially because the original Ghostbusters invites that possibility very easily when uh, they meet Gozer and Winston says, I thought Gozer was a man. And Ego says, well, it's whatever it wants to be. So I wish they would have just had Gozer appear in a completely different form rather than appearing exactly as it did, he did, she did, whatever, in the original movie. Yeah. By the way, why does the mom, like, like when she become before she becomes the terror dog, she, like, transforms into, like, a cocktail dress? Wasn't the cocktail dress just because Sigourney Weaver's character was at a party? No, that no, not at all. When, when she got taken and possessed, she was wearing, uh, like, workout clothes. She had just gotten done working Oh, out. you're right. Okay. Yeah, that, that was, like, a dress that, like, you you never see it, but you just assume that it's manifested as part of her possession. Ah, uh, okay. Um, what did you think about how this town connects with Gozer? I liked that it tied into the deeper mythology that is mentioned in the original Ghostbusters. Um, you know, the the idea of Evo Shandor having this history and, um, you know, digging into the cult of Gozer and where he originally tried to, to summon her and, you know... Um, do this crazy thing that brought the Sumerian god into the world. I like that it, it, it had that tie to the mythology. Uh, it doesn't pay off anywhere near as well as it should, especially when you have do something as weird as having J.K. Simmons playing the uh, suspended animation corpse of Evo Shandor that suddenly comes to life, only to be quickly 
ripped in half by Gozer when she arrives. <laughs> Completely pointless. I don't know what the point of it is or why it happened, but whatever. I, I would have thought it was more pointless if during the movie I even knew that that was J.K. Simmons. I, I did not even occur to me. Yeah, actually, so I, I noticed, I recognized him immediately in the box, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, it, it, I thought maybe that I assumed actually that that was it. It was just a fun little thing like that Jason Reitman did because he's worked with J.K. Simmons before. Um, but and then, you know, yeah, obviously you come back and actually when he comes back, that's when everyone realized it was him. And there was like a little bit of a laugh like in the theater that I was in. And so <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Uh, um, we should talk. There's some other cameos in this movie that you might not know. So Muncher is actually voiced by Josh Gad. Yes. So All I, I, I groans and laughing and whatever you want to call it. Munching. And then Gozer is is who Olivia Wilde. That's crazy. Yeah, that's it's crazy that they were able to keep that secret. Um, and it's surprising, and in a way a little distracting um especially because there are certain things about gozer that they didn't carry over from the first movie um obviously the voice has changed and like certain elements of uh her appearance aren't you know quite exactly as they they should be but like having a recognizable actor in that role kind of took me out of it because it made it feel like it was a a very flashy uh fan film in a way um but there were like little subtle elements that I enjoyed, such as the way her body was kind of translucent and lighting up within her clothes, as opposed to just having a sparkly bodysuit on. I thought that was kind of a cool touch. Okay. We've gone a half an hour into this. We haven't talked about the ending. Let's talk about the ending. Uh, what did you not like about the, what, what did you like about the ending? Is there anything you liked about the ending? Yeah. I, so I, I think that the, the dynamic between the original Ghostbusters when they show up is is perfect. The banter between them is is solid. Bill Murray is just as good as he ever has been. Not all of the one-liners or jokes, I, I think, land firmly. I, this is where I wish that they had, you know, a another comedy writer take another pass at the script or something like that, because I feel like it, need, it needed it. it, it it's missing some of that, that wit that um, someone like Harold Ramis would have brought to this movie, you know, granted Dan Aykroyd is still around, but Jason Reitman's not a comedy writer. He's, he's made movies that have comedic elements and can be very funny. Um, but the, his funniest ones were not written by him. You know, Diablo Cody wrote the script for Juno. Um, and so he's, he's not as strong of a writer as Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray to really give them, I think the strength that they needed. Bill Murray though, did definitely beef it up and there's some good stuff here. Um, and I just I like seeing them together again, but just the way it's structured and the way it happens, it feels so haphazard and messy. And then you have the Egon Spengler of it all. And I, how did you feel when this moment actually happened? You know what? When it when it, it initially happened, I was kind of just surprised that it didn't look bad. Do you know what I mean? For yeah. for some reason, I was like expecting it to be badly cg but like it really looked like harold ramus it looked i mean um and it looked like um it looked like he would look like today if he was had been alive do you know what i mean yeah it, it and i don't know how what kind of have has anybody talked to reitman or anybody about like how they were able to achieve that because i was actually kind of i i think it's probably bad I, I, what i'm saying is bad because it took me out of the film that i was like so amazed that it didn't look horrible 
yeah. Um, I agree with you there. I was impressed that uh, with how it looked, e- even in spite of the fact that it did not look like Harold Ramis as he looked when he did age. And I guess that's fair because you don't necessarily want to have the representation of how Harold Ramis looked when he was older, but maybe how you think Egon would have looked if he aged within the universe. And that seems a little bit weird because if Harold Ramis were alive today, he would look how Harold Ramis looked when he did age. And again, he definitely got, uh, he got a little bit fatter and he wasn't the, you know, the, the wiry, you know, um, tall, thin nerd that he is in, in Ghostbusters. So, but it was fine, you know, to see him represented in that way. And the work was fairly, fairly impressive. Even like usually where they fail is like in, in the eyes and even his eyes looked pretty good, but it's just the way that the, that Egon is used in that moment because you can't have him talk because having him talk would make it that much weirder. So all you can have him do is kind of give these bittersweet knowing glances as everyone recognizes what's happening, whether from what, from the Spangler family to all the ghostbusters, you know, just looking at him and giving the glances like, yeah, this is, you know, kind of sad, but here we are. And I'm Egon Spangler. (laughs) Well, see, I have a, a, I have a lot of problems with the ending of this movie, the ghostbusters showing up. I I mean, I, I was all for the ghostbusters being in this movie and showing up. But it, it, it kind of feels like this movie is the story, like it's someone else's story, and then they show up and they kind of steal the story from them, and it feels wrong. I kind uh, of wish they showed up earlier in the movie and then somehow went away. I don't know how you'd do that because they wouldn't just like walk away if like they knew there was Gozer's second coming. Yeah, and then, you, and, then you, and then you don't have the quote-unquote surprise of them showing up as the cavalry in the end because you, you can't have these little moments establishing like where they are in New York and stuff like that. But like, it's also weird logistically because they're mad at Egon because Egon took all the equipment with him. Right. And he used their proton packs to set up that trap in Ivor Shandor's mine to stop that portal of ghosts from bursting out. So when they get to Somerville, Oklahoma, do they have to themselves go to the mine and track down those proton packs because they shouldn't have their own still unless they have a surplus of proton packs, in which case it wouldn't make sense for them to be mad at Egon <laughs> for, ta- for taking the proton packs to begin with. So they have to go up there and get the proton packs. And, and in your mind, they already have another Ecto-1 as well. Right, exactly. But it's not even... <laughs> and, so, and so they have to come there. And so, like, did they get a rental car and drive to the, mm. to the mine? You know, like, there's this whole thought process of, like, you have to figure out how they get there. Like, Because I don't mind that they get there at just the right time. That's how movies work, okay? That's totally fine. Yeah. But it invites a whole slew of questions. Um, and that's before all of the Egon stuff. Because then my question about Egon as a ghost who manifests as a person that looks exactly how he did when he died is what does that mean for all of the other ghosts that have been treated basically like pests that need to be exterminated that the Ghostbusters have dealt with? Why is Egon this ghost that comes back in his perfect, you know, human form, not looking like a monstrous uh, spirit or or a zombified human. And why is it that he's not sucked in to the, the field of ghost traps? Why does he get to ascend, you know, into what is, I guess, spiritual dust? So, like, that, that element that pulls at your heartstrings, or at least it's meant to, and is this touching moment where the ghost of Egon Spangler actually appears... It raises into into question the entire 
premise of there being an afterlife and what these ghosts are even doing and how they're dealt with. Like, is it now cruel that the Ghostbusters simply trap all these ghosts and put them in a containment unit to be done whatever with, you know, like it's maybe that's super (laughs) nitpicky, but, but like, if you're going to treat the world of Ghostbusters with Mm. such reverence and care and nostalgia, then I feel like you have to at least care about the rules for the premise of the movie. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, you're, you're not wrong. I hadn't even thought about that. I think my problem with Egon showing up, and, and what you say is totally valid. I don't think that's nitpicking at all. That's it. It does make you make raise a lot of questions about ghosts and what Ghostbusters are doing to the ghosts in this world. Um, maybe they're only attacking the ghosts that are causing havoc, Brad. Right, like the bad ghosts. Sure, but like, why? Why haven't we seen any other good ghosts? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, the okay, so. My one of my big problems with Egon is it's like this emotional moment that feels like it's unearned of him like helping uh, the main character. What's her name? Phoebe. Yeah, yeah. Phoebe uh, fight against Gozer, and it almost feels to me like they should have made. I don't know how you'd make it work, but it almost feels like the mom character should have been the main character, or like like you needed that. You needed a relationship between the main character and Egon. And in the way it's set up here, she's never known her grandfather, right? Like, so it's that moment doesn't feel emotional as it should be because they don't have a relationship outside of, you know, him playing chess with her and helping her build a proton pack as a ghost. Like it doesn't like it feels like it would be so much better moment if it was the mother who kind of like thought he was crazy and like moved out and wanted nothing to do with her. Like in if, you know, she she later in the film finds all these photos. She finds that like she was loved by him. And like it would it would have been a good moment if it was her and Egon, like working together and her like especially her not liking science, not uh, believing in the Ghostbusters, all that stuff, actually having to pick up the thing and do a thing that she never wanted to be part of like that feels like that would be the emotional thing there, but it doesn't make sense to me with Phoebe. Yeah. I think that there is a little bit of what does work for me as far as like that resolution is that for Phoebe, her finding out that Egon is her grandfather makes her feel like she's not an outcast because she, she realizes why she is the way, way she is. And she realizes that there's, essentially a reason for it you know it's kind of the chosen one trope but in a much more low level fashion where like she has all this you know small uh intelligence and like interest in science and engineering because egon was her grandfather and so learning that i think gives her a sense of belonging and actually makes her feel like she's she's normal even though she's different from you know her everyone else in her her family so i like that part of it for me what I, i i think that doesn't work is that when Egon finally appears in his full ghost form, it's to help her succeed as the hero rather than letting her have the agency to do it herself. Because I was mostly fine with him guiding her to the proton pack and his underground lab by way of the, the, the firehouse pole and stuff, because it still allowed her to figure things out for herself. She like, she opened the, 
the cyclotron and the proton pack and noticed that it needed to be fixed. You know, she wasn't told how it needed to be fixed. She knew how to fix it. She just had to be told where it was at. But in, in this final act, he literally has to hold her hand and proton pack to help save the day. And on one hand, sure, that seems like a great moment because it's him teaming up with, you know, the next generation of Ghostbusters and his old friends to, to defeat Gozer. But I feel like it strips Phoebe of her self-sufficiency and what she's already done herself as a character throughout the rest of the movie. And I almost wish that they figured out a way for Egon to maybe more briefly and less sentimentally appear to do something pivotal as a ghost rather than that. It could have been something as simple as, you know, triggering the, the ghost trap field or, you know, like using supernatural energy to, to give the trap field the power that it needed uh, to, to activate, you know, some, something like that um, rather than I think stripping Phoebe of like a, a pivotal moment for her. And like, even though they try to, they, they make it work in, in their, their own way by having that be an emotional moment for Phoebe to, to actually connect with her grandfather. It just didn't work that way for me. I a hundred percent agree with everything you just said. I, I don't know. And also, okay, here's a nitpick. This is definitely a nitpick. I'll put this in the nitpick category. Why did Egon, why was he able to show up visually in this last moment, but not the rest of the movie when he was helping Phoebe out, like to like build the suit and all that stuff? Yeah. And that's, that kind of goes in hand with like, I wish that there was a little bit more understanding or somehow explaining like the, the rules of how ghosts manifest and like what they're doing and and that kind of thing. Because yeah, there's no reason as to why everything else he did was, you know, uh, invisible until this, this key moment, like whether. And and it would have been like very easy to explain. You could have just had one character being like, Oh my God, the, uh, you know, the, the Ecto Valley is now opened up and like spirits are, are now visible or, you know, like, I don't know, something stupid. Like that would have, I'm not a screenwriter. That would have been horrible, but like it, by a, a great screenwriter could have created a one line that would have explained everything. Yeah. So, um, so that's why it's a nitpick. I think it could have been easily fixed up. Um, okay. So the, the end of this, we have the, the pan up to the, to the sky it says for Harold. It's a good moment, but then we cut to New York city. Yeah. Such. And this is such a tacked on thing that feels like it was made to set up the post credit scene, uh, that, that we'll see because it just it doesn't feel like it organically ties into like the spirit of the rest of the movie and it's just there to like basically show like look guys the ghostbusters are back in new york <laughs> <laughs> but like why not just put that shot of new york city like before that credit scene like it does i don't know it, it just felt so out of place or if you're going to show you new york city why not like go from the the stars and then pan down to new york city and then well, I mean, that's I don't the, know. Well, it's essentially what they did is they like they went up to the stars and then it panned, yeah. and panned down to the bridge and the Ecto one on the bridge, you know. So, yeah, I don't know. I just think that they didn't. Oh, was the Ecto one on the bridge? I missed that. Yeah, okay. you, yeah, you can see it's like that's the whole point is that you can see it's lights flashing and you hear the siren before it cuts to the title. Um, did you like the Are You a God? Was that one over the over like overboard and nostalgia? Uh, so it was a funny moment that worked comedically. Um, but but for me, it, it, it raised the question that we talked about is whether or not Gozer uh, 
has any memory of fighting the Ghostbusters before because it's implied that maybe there is by having the Stay Puffed mini puffed marshmallows be part of it. But the fact that she asks that again means that there's no like memory whatsoever from Gozer of fighting them. Um, but then it makes you think maybe there is because she knew how to uncross the streams and maybe it's just maybe it's just uh because they were only three of them using their streams and for whatever reason they needed four to properly cross the streams with enough power to destroy her again but the fact that she was able to do that almost made it seem like she anticipated it and knew how to defend again against it this time so i so i don't know if she remembers the ghostbusters or not (laughs) also there's like this whole prophecy predicting the years that ghoster will return which means that like all of it was set to happen no matter what. Like, why, why, why was Egon even there? Like, he just needed to show back up in 2021, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming that's what he figured out, maybe. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and by the way, did, they, they must have CG'd that, right? Because I'm sure it originally said 2020. Oh, yeah. When it was going to be really... Yeah, it, ha- it would have had to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um what do you think of us not getting the Ghostbusters theme song until the the credits hit? I mean, it makes sense. Like there's not really an appropriate moment to use it in the rest of the movie. And I feel like it's only used in the credits just for the sake of familiarity and giving you that feel good feeling of like, Oh yeah, there it is. Um, but I'm, I'm honestly surprised they didn't come out, figure out a way to incorporate that theme elsewhere, whether it was orchestral or in a, a winking nod sort of way, I feel like they showed some actually showed some reservation there. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking like there there could have been a way to show it on like a YouTube video or something and have like one of the main characters make fun of it, but then then you're hurting like a whole generation. Yeah, of then, fans. You, then you're doing that thing where like you're like you're acknowledging like yeah, we're too cool to like do this in the way, and so we're gonna make fun yeah. of it. Your name's Otto Octavius, right? It's that whole thing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I, I guess that's a good point. Um, okay, let's talk about the credit scenes because we're get, going along with this. Okay, uh, what happens in the mid credit scene? I don't remember. Is that the one with Sigourney Weaver? Yeah, this it's it's not it's not a traditional credit scene. It's just a gag for the most part. Bill Murray, uh, Peter Venkman is back in New York and he's uh, hanging out with Dana Barrett in uh, you assume is their apartment because you, she has a wedding ring on and it seems like they're married and they're a, a fully fledged couple now. Um, and, uh, they're playing with the, uh, psychic cards that Peter used in the original Ghostbusters to test his students on their telepathic abilities, whether or not they could see the shapes that were on the cards in their mind. And Bankman's trick was always shocking the male students because he was always flirting with the female students. And so Dana is using the cards and testing Bankman and he's getting them correct. And she's like kind of impressed by it, but then she, She's like, she, she's like, you marked the cards, didn't you? And then, and she shocks him and then he admits it and also admits that he only ever shocked the male students. And so it's a, it's a nice bit. Uh, it's good to see Sigourney Weaver back with, uh, with Bill Murray in this scene that, you know, their chemistry is still there, but it also, I, I have no one understanding why it exists other than just for the hell of it, because it's, if it's meant to be like an epilogue scene, like, how did they do this? Did they, did they know this was going to be just a credit scene and this was the way that they were going to get Sigourney Weaver back? Because, like, I, I, I don't know if they couldn't figure out a way to organically fit her into the rest of the movie. And so this is what they decided to do, which feels weird to bring Sigourney Weaver back just for a credit scene that doesn't have any meaning on the movie whatsoever. 
yeah, I don't know. What what did you think about this, Peter? I, my exact thoughts. Like it, it was fun to see them back together and they, they still have that chemistry together, but what's the point? You got Sigourney Weaver and like, she's wasted for nothing. It doesn't build into like uh, a hint of anything coming later. Like it, 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 it serves no purpose other than to be like, maybe just to reassure what? fans that like Vinkman and Dana are together. Like that seems like the only purpose for this scene beyond yeah. the comedic value of it. Why not have her show up as the fourth Ghostbuster? Or have a scene where like she's picking them up to take them to the airport? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like some at least that would serve some kind of purpose. Like this feels so disjointed from the rest of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um okay, let's talk about the post credit scene. This is the one where Janine and uh, Winston, they're talking in his office. He's he, he's grown his business into a thriving global enterprise, uh, but he'll never have the happiness that he had when he was a Ghostbuster. And, uh, oh, there's also that coin, that souvenir that uh, she has. And Yeah, they, used, they repurposed a, a deleted scene from the original Ghostbusters, an actual deleted scene, and made it canon by showing it uh, just before flashing back to present day with Janine and, and Winston. Yeah. And then we see, so this is the confusing part. We see the old firehouse and it seems like Winston has now used his money to rent out the old firehouse. Which, it, which we also find that he was the Starbucks, one like, yeah, that, that was the confusing part. Like I thought it was supposed to be a Starbucks. It was clearly not never a Starbucks. Like Starbucks would never let it get to that condition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Maybe you should have said, like, it's going to be a Starbucks. I don't know. It's just it was so weird that you put that in the movie and then you show the firehouse and clearly not a Starbucks. Um, we find out that he was also paying uh, for the rent for all that time. And um, we see the blinking light in the containment unit in the basement and the the cross with the mini puff logo at the end. What did you think of the post credit scene? Um. I don't know what to make of it because <laughs> I feel like this was something that I don't know if they were planning on doing and they did it as like a last minute thing to help set up the possibility of a sequel if this one did well enough. And it's vague enough that they could do anything that they want to with it because all they've established is that Winston could be opening up the firehouse and bringing the Ghostbusters back in some capacity uh, perhaps in the wait way you're saying the one the one actor that's not hard to get <laughs> right. is set up for the sequel <laughs> yeah of course you know and so i feel like this is their way of potentially making good on the kind of ghostbusters movie that they tried to make for a long time which brings in a new team of ghostbusters whether or not that will include phoebe and or podcasts and trevor remains to be seen i feel like they would have to be part of it you know somehow um but yeah it's clearly that setup and just you know, having the only hint at what's to come be the containment unit blinking red as if it's full and, you know, could burst open again shows that, you know, they, there's just some, a vague paranormal threat that could emerge for, for a possible sequel. But I guarantee you they haven't figured out what that sequel is yet. And it shows how unprofessional these Ghostbusters are. They've left these, these ghosts in this containment unit and it, it's going to explode and they're going to be the cause of the next ghost apocalypse. Yeah. Another, another cross rip. Yeah. So, um, uh, I don't know. 
I don't know what to think of this. Like, I, you know, I want, I want to see more Ghostbusters movies. I, I, I'm up for more Ghostbusters movies. This, this movie did do well at the box office. It did $44 million opening weekend domestically. I will say that Ghostbusters answered the call. The Paul Feig movie did $46 million, So it did $2 million more. And I know some people on film Twitter that, like, it, it's so interesting when people hate a movie. Like, just, like how they will use the information to serve their opinion. Does that make sense? Um, Because a lot of people are saying that they're like, this did worse than the last Ghostbusters movie. And that was considered a box office failure. The reason why that movie was considered a box office failure is it was made for almost $150 million. Uh, Jason Reitman made this movie for 75 million, like almost half of that. So a $44 million opening weekend on a $75 million movie is a success where a 46 or yeah, $46 million opening weekend on a $144 million movie, which I guess they were saying it would take like a 300 million to break even yeah. uh, was not considered a success. So, so basically what I'm saying here is this is, seems like if unless the box office falls off a cliff, which could happen um, that happened with uh rise of Skywalker, the other movie you mentioned earlier, um, if that did happen, then maybe they won't make a sequel. But it seems like it's on its way to possibly creating more Ghostbuster sequels. Uh, what do you think about that, Brad? Do you, do you want to see a sequel? Um, I really don't know. Um, I think if I if there were a sequel, and they do follow like in what it seems like they're going to do by having a new team and stuff like that, I I I, I hope, and I mean this as respectfully as possible, that it's not Jason Reitman that does it. Because I think that he was in a unique position to make this kind of Ghostbusters movie, and it only works in that way once. You can't make that same movie again. I think it's. I think if anything, how Ghostbusters Afterlife will go down in the franchise, at least at least for me and maybe for some other people, is it will be a bridge that maybe allows the Ghostbusters franchise to reconcile with the respect people had for the original movies while respectfully passing the torch to a new generation of Ghostbusters in the best way possible without Harold Ramis to be there to do it with the rest of the cast. Cause I think that that became the biggest problem after Harold Ramis passing of any hope of doing a new Ghostbusters without it being a reboot was getting that cast back together and doing something like this that allowed them to come back still be the heroes in some capacity and do something new. And now that they've done that and they've done it in a, in a, a way that was interesting enough, even, even, even with all of its flaws, I, I, I want to make it clear that I really liked the first two thirds of this movie and I appreciate uh, what it tried to do with Ghostbusters, even if it ended up collapsing on itself in the end. And I think that if it allows the franchise to continue in a way that maybe picks up and tries to do something that is, a little more in line with what the original Ghostbusters movies did, then I, I would be curious enough to see it. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and be like, I will never see another Ghostbusters movie ever <laughs> again. But I, I think I'm going to be much more cautious and reserved about my uh, excitement for the franchise from here on out if they choose to continue it. Yeah. I know Ivan Reitman wants to make a whole line of Ghostbusters movie. He, he wants the Ghostbusters movie universe. He wants to do... Uh, the MCU with Ghostbusters, like he has his whole Ghost Corpse company, and 
while I'm not sure if Ghostbusters is a franchise that's big enough to support a movie universe in the way, you know, on the, the level of an MCU, I, I do like the idea of doing other Ghostbusters movies and other different genres and characters and locations. And I think that could be cool and fun and interesting. I, I think we do need to get beyond going back to, you know, the, the original four Ghostbusters. And yeah, uh, I, I think that there's actually potential in doing what Dan Aykroyd always envisioned Ghostbusters to be, which is um, originally it was seen at the, as this much larger enterprise, one that spanned the galaxy even. And I think that if it turned into something akin to the men in black franchise, that that's where the success for Ghostbusters lies, because it's inter- interestingly enough, Men in Black is one of maybe like two franchises, I feel like, that come close to emulating the same kind of tone and approach to sci-fi blockbuster comedy um, genre. Men, Men in Black is, uh, even though the second one sucks and the third one is mostly good, the, the first <laughs> one is very much in line with the same tone and style of the original Ghostbusters. And I think that if Ghostbusters kind of veered into that men in black territory and made it uh, at this kind of like agency or organization that has, you know, uh, teams situated around the world, then that might be the best, the best place for it to, to go. Yeah. You know, when I was watching this movie before we got to the terror dogs, I was like, wow, I'm really going to be the one person, like one person on slash film that really loves this movie. Uh, But yeah, it, it went downhill in the end. I, it is funny how, or I wouldn't say funny. It's interesting how much weight in ending goes against your whole opinion on a movie. Because I think you, even you would say like probably 70% of this movie you really liked 70% of this movie I thought was great, but it's that last like 20 to 30% that like sours the the rest of it and yeah. I, while i was watching while i was watching this and getting up to the bad parts i was kind of like i wish this was almost like a tv show i know a lot of people were calling this like the stranger things ghostbusters movie or whatever but um i felt like this could have like sustained like a season of tv yeah and i think it would have allowed them some room to pad out the storytelling so that certain things didn't feel so rushed um but yeah, and I, I want to go back to your point about, yeah, it, it feels very weird to enjoy a good chunk of this movie and have the rest of it be sullied by this this ending. Because like I I didn't enjoy writing my my negative review of this movie. It's it's and it's not completely negative. I acknowledge the things that I that I enjoyed and the stuff that worked, but that, that ending just hit me so like hard in a bad way that it felt like a gut punch and it made me feel bad, you know for for having to write it when i did enjoy a good chunk of the rest of the movie but like yeah you're you're right like it's it's weird that an ending that really disappoints you can just sully the entire experience um i did want to bring up one last thing one surprise um rick moranis did not show up they were Ah. unable to get rick rick back I don't think that's really a surprise because he, even though he's not really (laughs) retired, he hasn't been working much. And I think that he was even um, asked about whether or not he would be in. And I think that he, he confirmed that he, he didn't come back for it. Just as he didn't, you know, make a cameo with everybody else in Ghostbusters answer the call. So yeah, I was not surprised that he, he didn't show up. I was hoping that maybe there would be a surprise that he did and they were able to hide it, but it didn't happen. And so it was, yeah, I was fine with it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Maybe he'll show up in the sequel. Probably not. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> uh, Brad, do you have any final thoughts that we didn't go over in this spoiler discussion? No, no. I think we mostly covered it. Um, I... Yeah, I just, I just, I wish I loved this movie. I really do. I wanted to love this movie. I am, and I was hoping for the best. And it, it really, it, it's, it really felt like a punch to the heart to not like it as much as I've seen some people enjoy it and to be, to be disappointed. And it's not a choice. Like this was, this was my genuine, instinctual reaction as stuff was happening. And there was a, the, you know, like it's around the time that the terror dogs show up and like things start moving very quickly and it feels messy where I started just getting a sinking feeling and, and, and like my heart fell into my stomach and I was just like, Oh no. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, that's a really, it's a rough feeling to have when it's something that you feel like you're enjoying it. You were hoping to, to come out uh, really, really liking, but um, yeah, here we are. Uh, I, one thing I do want to say, one thing that I would love to see uh, the Ghostbusters franchise do, and I think that it would be uh a good way to continue it in a, an exciting way that doesn't require um, the canon timeline to be messed with or acknowledged is to do a real Ghostbusters movie animated in a similar style to Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse produced by Lord and Miller. At one point, Lord and Miller were supposed to be working on a Ghostbusters movie. And I feel like if anyone could do, a really interesting take on Ghostbusters and make it refreshing and exciting. It's them and doing it as an animated movie. Hmm. That could be interesting. See, you're, you're saying, um, spider verse. So that's making me think that like you could have spider, uh, have a uh, Ghostbusters from different worlds come together, but I guess there's what, there's probably the only, the, the original Ghostbusters. There's, uh, well, there's ex- I guess the, there's, there's extreme the animated, uh, extreme Ghostbusters. There's the well, you could have uh, the Ghostbusters from Answer the Call that could become animated. Yeah. I doubt that's going to happen. So, well, so but. well, I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, that's the that's what the comic books did. There's um, the Ghostbusters comic book series is very good if you haven't read it, and they actually had this big crossover event where the the New York the original New York Ghostbusters, the Answer the Call Ghostbusters, the real Ghostbusters, and even Extreme Ghostbusters all met each other, and they ha- it was this big crossover event that was that was very cool when did that come out uh it came out not long after answer the call i think Hmm. i'm gonna have to look into that okay anyways we've gone double our normal time so you can find more of us at slash home.com i'll link brad's spoiler review so if you want to go read that he has much more to say you can subscribe to this podcast on apple google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please feel free to send your feedback questions comments concerns to us at peter at social.com and please rate and read this podcast and apple podcast tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you tomorrow